Supercomputing is becoming an essential tool of scientific and medical research. Operating award-winning data centres, KO Data is proud to host Cambridge One, the UK's most powerful supercomputer, accelerating health research. With computing power and space available, and excellent connectivity to Cambridge and the cloud, KO Data is ideally placed to support advanced computing organisations of all shapes and sizes. Get in touch today at kodata.com slash contact. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So Faye, I haven't seen you for a while. How has your week been? I know, it's like it's like we see each other loads and then don't see each other for a while, but I'm sure we'll rectify that next week for a variety and the week after. And actually, possibly the week after. There's no escape. <laughs> so, so you'll be really happy you haven't seen me for, for a little while then, so that's good. Yeah. Hey, do you know what? So it's what, 37, 36 days or something? Someone will correct me anyway. But yeah, it's definitely in the 30s now till Christmas, which is exciting. Anyway, you asked me, sorry, I think I've just gone off on a tangent. This week, so loads of exciting stuff. Did some work with Cambridge Science Centre. And at the start of the week, a lot of the week has been taken up with me wearing my Cambridgeshire Chambers of Commerce hat. Uh, We have a big event this coming week on Wednesday, the 22nd at Imperial War Museum in Duxford, which is a CAMS B2B event. Um, So that's taken up quite a lot of the week. A couple of pieces of work for the entrepreneurial programs in Cambridge through the university and I've been in your gaff as well so so you haven't seen me but I've actually been in the Bradfield Centre working with Mark and Chris Watson on planning for 21 to watch which is going to be in the Bradfield Centre next year on the 7th of March did you know that I think I I did know that yeah yeah let's celebrate that again Yeah, absolutely. Well, we planned that um, behind your back anyway, so I'm sure you won't mind. <laughs> yeah, I've had a really uh, interesting week as well, kind of a bit of everything. So um, we had the reboot of the Software Crafters Cambridge Meetup uh, at the Bradfield, which is really nice. Great to see those kind of communities coming back after the disruption of COVID. And uh, on the theme of events, we had our first Trinity Bradfield Prize workshop on uh, Wednesday night at Trinity College. Friend of the show, Lucy Young from Charcoal was one of the panellists and also Steve Marsh from Geospock. And uh, Steve is working on something in stealth and I've already nobbled him to come onto the podcast. So uh, look out for that in the new year. Good. And then last, but by no means least, my, uh, my daughter graduated on Tuesday. So we were down in London to celebrate that. So very proud parents. Wow. And what did she read? Marketing and communications. Superb. Should we move on with the news then? Yeah, let's do that. What's been happening in Cambridge this week? 
Well, let's start with some unconfirmed news. So we're not gossiping here. We have actually been provided this piece of information. So, And this news is on Pragmatic. And you'll know Pragmatic, Cambridge Company, revolutionising the semiconductor industry. It has been reported that they're set to reap a whopping £200 million in new funding this month from M&G's Catalyst Fund and Saudi Aramco's investment arm. So Sky News broke the story. Bloomberg followed up, but Pragmatic declined to comment when they were approached by Business Weekly. But if it is true, the whole will more than double their investment pile to date, which stands at around 190 million. And bearing in mind that that the big amount of that was a Series C of 125 million in December last year, so like almost 12 months ago. So this is like a huge game changer if if that is actually coming true. So we'll hopefully find out for accuracy in the coming days. And they've also hired a semiconductor industry veteran, Shane Geary, a senior vice president of manufacturing and operations. So they're definitely continuing to be on the up. No, that's really exciting. And also news coming out of another well-known Cambridge scale-up, Bolt, who are pioneering the development of ultra-fast charging batteries. This week, they've launched an advanced battery technology to be rolled out as an electric vehicle mobile DC supercharger, which can deliver up to 300 kilowatts DC charge. That sounds like it could really kind of close a gap in the infrastructure that's necessary for EV vehicles to be widely adopted. So that's really interesting. And Nibolt also have developed an EV themselves called Bolt E, which can be recharged in six minutes and has a battery life of over 10,000 charging cycles. Very impressive. So should we move on then to today's episode? We sat down with Oriane Chossio and Seamus Ashir, two of the co-founders from Heartfelt Technologies, and we talked to them about their entrepreneurial journey, about funding, and about the problem that they're tackling. So let's find out more. So welcome, Oriane and Seamus. It's great to have you with us today. Why don't you just introduce yourselves? I'm Dr. Seamus Hashia. I'm the co-founder of Heartfelt Technologies. I came to Cambridge in 2002 to start my PhD in nuclear and structural chemistry, and I forgot to go home, so please don't tell the Home Secretary. (laughs) Seriously, though, Ariane and I met whilst I was studiously avoiding my PhD, and a group of us won the university business competition for a remote patient monitoring company. That company was based on infertility, and there was a group of us students that won a prize from the local investment community who then went on on to back us multiple times uh, to fund that company. Eventually that company was taken over by a venture fund which came with its own management. Life got a little bit boring for the scientific (laughs) founders as often the case. We moved on and started another company together because we had so much fun doing the first one. Ups and downs of entrepreneurship as they are, it's, it's actually, you know, overall it's really quite fun. Yeah. And you can also make a meaningful impact. So that that's great. And loads of things to unpick there, which I'm sure we'll come back to. Oriane. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Oriane Chosio, if I want the full title. But uh, so I'm French, also came a year after Seamus to Cambridge. I did an Erasmus exchange program. And uh, yes, the story then follows what Seamus just said. I'm the chief scientific officer for the business. That's great. So before we actually go into heartfelt technologies, let's start with 
why did heartfelt technologies come about? What's the issue that you're trying to address? So heart failure is a chronic condition. It affects a lot of people, uh, typically elderly patients. The NHS spends two billions on that every year. The majority of that cost is linked with hospitalization. And most of these hospitalization are preventable. And most of these patients that get hospitalized are what clinician called non-adherent patient or non-compliant patient. I think it's really important at that point to say that these patients are not refusing the healthcare. They're not on purpose avoiding what they're supposed to be doing. They might have dementia, they might have comorbidity, which makes it really difficult for them to follow the regimen they're supposed to be following. And so we were having a conversation at a friend's birthday party with a cardiologist who was having a frank conversation, I think is, a, is the polite way of putting that, uh, with us and explaining what the problem was with a lot of his patients and saying, you know, if only they told me that their ankles were swelling, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't be so unwell. They wouldn't be blocking beds in the NHS, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Seamus came up with an idea on the spot and uh Went in the kids' uh, bedroom to crayon it. Yeah. Uh, on, uh, <laughs> I, I should point out, this was the third bottle of wine down with the cardiologist. And uh, as our answers, he was being very forthright about the issues as a surgeon, chopping people open, putting pacemakers and implants into them, and the amount of what was, in his view, unnecessary surgical procedures for people who, and this is classic for clinicians, who they feel just aren't following the instructions. And, you know, quite rightly, the clinicians are frustrated by this. But when you delve deeper into this, there's really good reasons why these people aren't following instructions. They're simply overburdened most of the time. But about the third bottle of wine down, knowing that we were looking for our next thing, uh, I was like, oh, what am I? I can solve that for you. As I say, my PhD was in instrumentation design, so I could immediately see an application of imaging technology to this. And just about, I think, nine months before this conversation, there was a large change in the way that uh, neural networks were being trained for image processing. So you'd literally gone from impossible to do certain image recognition and processing tasks to feasible on a great big GPU and desktop. But myself and our third co-founder who did his PhD research in image processing here in Cambridge We'd been sort of following what was going on with that, uh, him to a greater extent than myself, uh, but we knew that this might be possible. So sketched out, literally, with the, the kids felt at pens, a very rough plan of what, what one could do to, to solve this, and it's almost the same as the patent that we filed about three months later, which then eventually granted with these amazingly broad claims um, because we just happened to be very early into this this field of, you know, the change from impossible to possible and applying this to a specific niche in the in the medical marketplace that other people hadn't considered at that time. That's a very Cambridge story, isn't it? Being being at a party and having the right conversation at the right time. So Heartfelt Tech, you're looking then at both the actual medical device and also then the AI and the and the software that interprets and analyzes and produces the data. Oh, oh yes. The actual hardware. If someone could go and steal our hardware, replicate it and uh, sell it on the market at half the price, we would love them for it because all that we want to do is run the software that is necessary to do this analysis. Um, the hardware is a means to an end. Now, 
most of the hardware that we have is off-the-shelf devices. In fact, our, our very first prototype was a massive bank of Raspberry Pis, also straight out of Cambridge, all arranged in a, a particular physical arrangement. So all these cameras pointed at the same spot, and that spooled great wads of data off to a PC that had to be processed manually at the start. Then we moved on to a bastardized version of the Microsoft Connect Xbox sensor. We, we literally rewrote the firmware for this, uh, hacked the connectors so that we could put it onto a, a, a PC with a graphics card on, and we were sticking boxes with these things in patients' homes. We got this game controller through CE marking as a medical device. Uh, Orion's just brilliant at, at going through the, the regulatory paperwork for these things. And that allowed us to collect uh, decent amounts of data that we could use to train uh, neural networks in the way that we needed, because it's not like there was a great data set publicly available of people's feet as they as they have heart failure. Right? We had to go and get all this right from scratch and train networks from scratch on us. So how many how many images has it taken to get the model to a point where it's reliable? We were very early into what is now very trendy, which is sort of data simulation and synthetic data. We just didn't have any data and necessity being the mother of invention. We used a cartoonist's tool, 3D animation tool, to fake lots of anatomical data using cartoon almost body models and then applying the correct statistical noise from the sensors and things like that over it in order to generate data that was good enough to train the very first models. Uh, and you could get the you know, requisite hundreds of thousands to millions of images out of that. And that was good enough to get the thing working to a stage where we could then collect real patient data. And then you can use a technique called transfer learning, where you sort of just modify the, the network a little bit with the data that's really precious. And medical work, you've, you've always got a shortage of, of actual patient data. And then we could get that working with the patient data and absolutely worked as we hoped that it would with, at the time, only only thousands of real images coming out. And now, of course, we have, um, I think it was, I don't know, a third of a petabyte or something like that of data that we've got an enormous amount of collected now. And so we've got far more data for training than we actually need now, um, which is great because you can then set up all sorts of statistical methods to be selective to ensure that you've got balanced data sets and even relatively unusual or rare features, you can ensure that they have decent representation and this helps training your models, all sorts of good things like that. And just so listeners can visualize it, the device itself, is it a wearable? Is it, is, okay, it's something where you have to... Install it in the bedroom, okay. just by the side of the bed, which yeah. is slightly controversial, but we can get to that in a minute. Okay. Um, the reason we choose that place is because patients go in and out of bed relatively reliably, right? They might even go to the toilet several times during the night if they take their diuretics. So we're going to get more data at that point. Mm. So we install it, it's simply attached to the wall or near the wall, mm -hmm. and it's plugged in. And it doesn't touch the patient. It's all using 3D imaging technology. Okay. So the patient doesn't have to remember to do anything. And that's really important. Yeah, if I come yeah. back to my non-adherent, non-compliant patient, you don't want to make them use an app, mm. wear a wearable. They're going to forget it. You that's know, really after a few weeks, 
it's just not going to be done anymore. And that's the problem. That's why these guys are in and out of hospital again and mm. again and again. So anytime there's movement, it takes an image. So every time the, there is movement, the, the device is going to look for the features of a feet. And yeah. so initially it was not very good at that. We did have quite a range of things coming up on the images. Uh, but over time, as we train the models better and better, yeah. we now have just human feet on there. And then it is learning to recognize the patient against other carers or other people in the house. Okay. So we could selectively take the measurements from that person as opposed to the whole family, which would be meaningless. Mm, really so. interesting. So uh, the idea is they're being tracked much more regularly. That's right. Than, I, I mean, how would they be tracked if they didn't have this? So the standard care in the UK is patients are asked to weigh themselves every day and to report a change in weight of about a kilo and a half or so over several days. That's all well and good if you are able to remember to step on those scales and to interpret the results yourself and remember what it was yesterday or remember to note it down. These guys don't remember to do that and can't do that reliably. So we did several studies and pretty much overall we are looking at about three times per month people will measure themselves on the weighing scales. That's clearly not enough. About a third of patients over a year-long clinical study don't slip on the scales once, even when they're told by the doctor, this is, you know, potentially life-saving, just track if your weight shoots up. They just can't. They just can't. And weight, although it's quite a, a good clinical indicator, not, not the best, but, you know, it's a convenient thing to measure, there's a large population of patients who have psychological associations of weight with their lives. These are patients often who have had weight management problems through their lives, often self-esteem issues as a result, and have been told repeatedly, you know, you have to lose weight, you have to lose so, so they don't have a positive association with something that they're then told is medically necessary for them to do. So you're starting from a sort of a low baseline of acceptance there. There are other devices that are given to these patients, wearable blood pressure cuffs, right? But, you, you know, you don't wear them all the time. You have to remember to wear them. There are some devices, um, smartwatches, for example, that can get some associated parameters about these conditions. But the reality is that uh, even Fitbit, I think when they filed for an IPO, they had to disclose that something like the median wearer of a Fitbit used it for 90 days before it was then just left <laughs> discharged in a drawer. These are these are people trying to, you know, they're, they're, they're young, young, fit, exercising yeah. people, right? And they are stopping charging and wearing these wearables. The Apple Watches, because, you know, the additional functionality that the watch brings to you, checking your email and so on, people tend to engage with those a little better longer term. But if you're not engaging with it for that extra functionality, if you're just using it as some sort of tracker, then adherence drops straight back down to like a, like a Fitbit. And let's remember, these patients are in their 80s, so they're not as email-focused as a lot of the younger patients might be. Um, but if I just come back to the comparison that, you know, we were talking about earlier, so standard care, we get three days for the patients who do weigh themselves. If we compare with the data we're getting, it's about 23 days per month's worth of data. Even they, the ones who don't weigh themselves at all. That's right. So the clinicians then have data they can work with. They can look at their data, they can look at trends, and they can decide, you know, that patient needs to have slightly more diuretics because they're not coping as it is. 
And so the clinicians have got that platform, they've got the access, and there's a they, there's a trigger or something? They do. So um, this is another challenge in the NHS at the moment. The, the GPs are the ones supposed to be looking after these patients. They're incredibly busy. It's very difficult to get an appointment. So in theory, you have about 10 to 15 days by the point an alert is raised before the patient is hospitalized, which should be plenty of time. We all know that's difficult to get a GP appointment at the moment, so then they can't all do that. However, the good news is these patients have been prescribed the diuretics at home, and in the majority of cases, the reason why their feet are swelling is because they forgot to take the diuretics. So a simple phone call from either us or one of their relatives, carers, can solve that problem. Just reminding granny, did you take your medication yesterday? Go and check the pillbox, please. No, you didn't. All right, well, make sure you take it and you don't forget it for the next two days, because otherwise we know what happens, you'll end up in hospital. Uh, I should point out here that obviously if we could just remind patients all the time to take their pills, then we, we wouldn't have a business. <laughs> but the reality is that there's been academic study after academic study trying to do, and products on the market, trying to do reminder-type apps for these patients. And people get what's called reminder blindness. So. That this works for a period of time. There's lots of studies that show wonderful 30-day improvements in people's use of pills and medication with such devices and and apps and so on. But by one year later, they're right straight back down to baseline. These patients living with this condition, typically for the rest of their lives, often five years, I think the median is after diagnosis. So you can't just come up with solutions that work for a 30-day trial and, you know, go, wow, we got that, publish it and move on. This has got to be something that works with people as often, sadly, their capability to adhere worsens and worsens and worsens. And their probability and the risk of further hospitalizations increases throughout that time. So really the benefit that you're trying to get out of such technology, it becomes more and more important as they become less and less adherent to that advice. Fascinating. I'm thinking while you're talking about these devices that remind you of things, I, I put one on my phone, which is you have to stand up, you know, because I, I sit down working most of the time and it's like you, it beats me when I have to stand up, but except it really annoys me. So, and, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I spoke to an ex-colleague <laughs> and he's like, well, why are you even doing that? Because you're just going to ignore it. You're not going to have an app telling you what to do, are you, Faye? And there's a little bit of that, isn't there? There's that human behavior you're trying to get. So I want to pick up, Orion, back to one of your points. You said it's, it can be a little bit controversial putting it next to the bed. Why, why would that be? Because it seems to be, that seems to be, very logical. Well, it seems very logical, but if you think about how the device works, it takes images. And so obviously taking images in somebody's bedroom can be a bit controversial. Right. So we've had to work with patients, their carers, obviously clinicians as well, to make sure that what we were doing was acceptable. So we've put in place some measures to ensure that privacy was respected. So for example, the camera is pointing downwards a little bit. So we're focusing on the feet, nothing else. We are censoring images 40 centimeters from the floor. So you you don't even see the knees basically of the patients. And so interestingly, that comes up in quite a lot of the conversation with the nurses and the clinicians is to say, you know, is it ethical to do this? Mm. But when we talk to patients, they're absolutely fine. I mean, some of them want to see on, you know, if we show them on a screen, this is the type of data we would get when you are standing here. Look, this is what it looks like. They get quite excited. They think that's very nice that somebody's looking after them and can be there for you if, if that's needed. But. We've got a device where we're running a uh, an AI on the front end looking at every image that comes off on a video stream. So it's constantly running. It's not that it's movement detected or 
or something like that, constantly streaming this data through an AI. And the job of that AI is to recognize people's feet, um, which also means that it can do a partial job, not a complete job, of separating everything that's not a foot out of that. And then you take the data that passes through that filter effectively in, in mathematical terms that's been partially censored, pass it to the next stage in the pipeline and so forth. And you can, as you pass it along that, that pipeline, you eventually end up with only the pixels that are on people's feet getting used in, in the final steps of processing. The further you can move that computation to the edge, to the device, obviously it has privacy benefits for the patient, but there's an economic benefit for us as the company in doing so in that our server costs are smaller, our bandwidth costs are smaller, and so on. So it's it's this really nice virtuous circle here with improving quality of data that we capture, improving the training of the AI. We have a financial incentive to improve privacy, right? And obviously the patients want that. Well, the patients, as Arian says, often don't really express an opinion. The clinicians, the nurses, and the families of the patients want that. You know, you hear a lot of debate about AI and privacy and so forth. Often commercial companies have a perverse incentive when it comes to privacy in the AI field. I think this is an excellent example of where a company can have a very positive aligned incentive with privacy. You reference some NHS data in describing the size of the problem. My understanding is the NHS is quite a complex organisation to deal with. So where are you right now in terms of piloting or trialling the, the service and the device and, and what does that process look like? So we've had uh, five clinical studies in the NHS across, I think it's now dozens of sites have been involved in that, including a small randomised controlled study, which is sort of the gold standard of clinical trials. We have had pilots with many GP groups, including one of the largest GP chains in the country, where they've just given this device to their patients, allowed us to monitor them. And because GPs are very overloaded, this has allowed the GPs to essentially have less of their time used up monitoring these patients. And they hear from them when you know our system raises an alert. This minimizes the amount of GP time needed for what are as far as the health system is concerned, quite burdensome patients. And the GPs can spend that time having you know, more meaningful conversations with patients, all the different types of patients they have, rather than just being like, come on, remember your pills. So it really helps there in, in the NHS. Clinical trial results have been really good. We've shown that it's better than the gold standard of measuring the volume of the foot. And it's as good as having a research nurse sitting in your bedroom checking for the worsening of, of edema. So it works wonderfully. But to your point, the NHS is a Byzantine organisation to work with commercially. Um, we haven't yet uh, commercialised in the NHS. We've had partnerships with all of these different parts of the NHS to do trials where we get to get the data that we need and we give the product to the NHS for free and we monitor these patients entirely at our cost. But that allows us to build up that crucial data for training the AI systems and to collect the clinical data to show that it works. So are you focusing on the UK or are you working internationally in parallel to that as well? As Seamus mentioned, the NHS is a little bit tricky to commercialise into. The US is the big market and that's where I guess most of our focus is going to be in the next, well, in the coming years. The other advantage of the US is from a, a clinical trial point of view, they have 
clever ways we could use to reduce the cost of a clinical trial. So if we were to do a 1,500 patient study, which is roughly what we would need to do to demonstrate a reduction in hospitalization, which is what NICE in the UK would want to see, it would take three to five years in the UK to do that by the time hospitals have time to recruit patients into it and we monitor them, etc., etc. In the US, we have found uh, potential partners to run such a study, and they're called remote patient monitoring companies. They are paid by Medicare to monitor these chronically ill patients, and they have a direct incentive to use our device because we collect much more data, which means they can get paid for the work that they are doing. So they're very excited to work with us on the clinical trial over there. We've just been having conversation with uh, FDA and Medicare on the protocol to make sure that they're happy with what we're proposing. That's going very well, so that's brilliant. And so I think the focus will have to be US first to to capture that data quicker, but then we will have to do a smaller study, maybe let's say two to 300 patients in the UK to validate the results here, because obviously they're very different healthcare systems. So what works with American cardiologists may not work with UK GPs and cardiologists. Um, So we need to demonstrate that. So that's the plan fascinating stuff and it's uh it kind of seems like a totally logical thing it's good for the healthcare service it's good for the patients it saves money i mean there's so many positives about it so it's really exciting thank you for for sharing that technology side of it and the business side of it what i would like to do now is talk a little bit about your experiences as as you said this isn't your first rodeo you've been here before so what are your experiences of setting up this business of running it of getting funding what's that journey been like so as i said we were actively looking for the next opportunity when we became bored in our last company once we spotted this we were reviewing a number of different ideas uh, that we were looking to work on but we knew that we wanted to work together this one matched elements of all of our skill sets so it seemed like a good idea and the thing that really pushed us onto this business was a pattern search that was done. We had a number of other opportunities we were looking at, and um, as is usually the case when you're looking at the patent landscape for a new idea, you know, it's, is your idea patentable? Yes, but. Well, this one, the patent attorneys came back to us, and they were like, uh, guys, file something as quickly as goddamn possible. This is amazing. <laughs> and, you know, you, you don't know what's behind you by about a... 12-month window because publications of patents take time. Um, But this advance that had been made in deep learning was, I think, less than 12 months behind us at the point that we we filed. So we were like, okay, maybe there will be stuff coming out. Uh, 12 months later, it was very clear that that wasn't the case. And we got these fantastic claims granted in Europe and the US. Um, It's brilliant. And so that's what pushed us to jump onto this. We went back to the shareholders of our previous business and said, hey, you guys know us. There's no obligation to work with us again. You know, you don't have any rights over our new new company and ideas. You know, investors buy your company. They don't buy you. But um, because we had a good relationship with many of those investors, we said, hey, uh, here's the new idea. At the time, we needed a little bit of money to match a small grant. You know, can we, you know, ask you guys to match what we needed. And uh, 
48 hours later, we had more than twice as much money offered as, as we were asking for. So that has to have been the easiest fundraising round I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and, and we were like, okay, well, I guess we have a business now. Um, so then we went through all of the process. That, again, you know, second, third time around, much easier to do because we knew exactly how to set up a business. Uh, we had, for example, because around's on the ball on these things, we'd been using a ISO 13485 accredited method of writing down all of our ideas and development before the company was even founded. That meant that we ended up getting a CE mark, I think it was four months after the business was incorporated. Now, legally, you need to have been sitting under a quality management system for six months before you can get a CE mark, right? So this was faster than legally possible other than that we could provide all of this evidence that all the earlier development before incorporation of the company had been done on, you know, meeting all the regulatory requirements. Yeah, these are things that I guess the first time around you would never even consider doing. But it was the same way as, you know, we knew which lawyers we wanted to work with, which accountants we wanted to work with. All of these things were so much faster to to set up because we had done it before. We already had a lot of contacts in Cambridge and, and elsewhere to, to help us with that, so... Has that reputation helped with building the team as you start to scale the business? Um, so we've been very careful on team size. One of the lessons that we learned from our, our last business, we're, we're scientists, we're technical people. We are not necessarily amazing managers. We know how to work with people who do our sort of thing. But we got up to a size of about 30 people in our last company that we were trying to manage ourselves. That's hard. And, yeah, it's when, really when, hard. When you have to juggle holiday calendars for 30 people, um, <laughs> that, that's not really what any of us got into business for. <laughs> um, and so we looked at this. We knew exactly what we needed to build and how. And there's, a, there's this idea, particularly in technical development, that your technical development progresses at the square root of the number of people in your team. So, you know, one person does one unit of work. Um, four people does two units of work right? Nine people does three units work. So it becomes very inefficient as you add people. And so we've chosen to have a team structure where we are very orthogonal. We have very separate skill sets. We don't step on each other's toes. And we have pretty well-defined demarcations between team members. Um, and that means that when we've added team members over time, we've been very careful about who we add and precisely what they're doing. And we've tried to minimize the amount of if you like, HR overhead in mm. that process. So the people that we hire are very self-motivated, self-starting individuals. We worked remote years before it was trendy. The pandemic came along and it was like, oh, okay, we're doing the same as, as everyone's been doing now, but we're going to do it more. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of how we worked anyway. And this worked very, very well for us. Yeah, um, scaling the team we, has been much, much more of a cautious, mm. thought-through, methodical process this time around, whereas last time it was like, oh, crap, we need extra work doing. Hire people to do it. And that turned out not to be the best way of building a building a team. Um, we did get fantastic high-quality people in our previous company. We were just lucky. Yeah. Several of them have come to work in our new company. <laughs> but, yeah, that was, that was down much more to good luck than good management, whereas now it's very much more methodical process it's grown up a little bit well yeah. it's an experience isn't it knowing how it works for you and, and being efficient i want to come back to um your comment about funding was really easy it was the easiest funding round the first one you did it's been difficult out there how is it now funding oh yes so we're we're probably a great example of a company that's had absolutely no issues raising funding right up through 
the pandemic. Then early 2022, with the best timing in the world, uh, we went out for a large BCE fundraise to cover this very large clinical trial that we knew we would need to do. And we, I think we went out to the market in February 2022 with that. Um, mm-hmm. And by March 2022, it was very clear that we were pitching a 2021 business and uh, the market was very different. A huge number of VC investors were sitting on their hands and it's perfectly logical, right? These people are making 10-year-long bets. Why would they make a 10-year-long bet in a year that a war starts, in a year that inflation hits? You would just sit there and wait to see whether this is a temporary thing, whether this is going to be a long-term thing, right? You wouldn't place 10-year bets in that environment. Terrible for the startups that are after that funding, of course, um, but perfectly logical for the investors. And as a startup, you know, the investor doesn't have to invest in you. You have to understand what their needs are. So by about the middle of 2022, we looked around and we're like, okay, this is an environment that's not going away anytime soon and we need to be funded differently. So like many people over the last year or so, um, we were possibly slightly earlier to it than many. Um, we just sat down and turned the company into a grant writing machine. Um, we've been extremely successful with that because, you know, a high-quality company that never had problems raising investment, market changes, you jump into the grant market, right, you're, you know, you're a high-quality company now in the grant market. And so we have um, raised well more than a million in uh, grant funding over that time, which has not only kept the team going, but we've actually, uh, we outpaced the grants that we expected to, to win and we had to grow the team in order to deliver on some of these grants. So the team size and scaling has actually happened faster more recently because of grants. That's really interesting and, and good advice, I think, for people that might be listening um, that are going through the kind of fundraising rounds at the moment. But as well as being successful on grant raising, you've also award-winning as well recently, I believe. You won the Santander X Global Challenge Award. Is that is that right? Yes. So uh, as part of the grant writing process, we included prizes of every yeah. stripe in there. Yeah. And Santander were looking for you know smart AI companies. Mm. We looked at that competition brief and thought, great, that's, you know, in our list of things to apply for. And we, we applied, thought nothing more of it, got a... An email back a little while later that we've been shortlisted. Oh, great. What did we apply for? (laughs) And then, you know, grant writing and and prize writing and things like that, it's very much a numbers game. You apply for a lot of things. You try and make sure that you screen for the many opportunities that are out there, for the ones that match you and your business. This one seemed to match us. Clearly, we were the sort of thing that they wanted. We went through the second phase and ultimately we, we won this. We were one of the startup winners that they flew out to San Francisco for an award ceremony at Microsoft's offices out there. Um, Came with a nice cash prize, which is always good in this environment, Mm. and also a lot of support from many stakeholders that they've engaged, such as Microsoft and other partners, and having a bank in there is no bad thing, again, in this environment. So yes, that's that's been great, and it's, you know, it's part of a strategy of, you know, looking at where you can get even modest amounts of funding add up if you're fairly careful to make sure that you balance the amount of time taken to apply for each opportunity against its likely outcome. It's 
just an optimization problem. Yeah, and that that kind of touches on the question, the follow up question. I mean, I think some people are a little bit cynical towards things like awards and entering awards, but it sounds like you've taken a very calculated approach in terms of, as you say, a finding awards that might be appropriate to you, but you're clear about the benefits of, right. of winning. Like it might be cash, it might be connection and networking or access to partnerships. It it might be the brand awareness and the validation of what you're doing from a third party. It's probably all of those things. But I think for people that are listening that are cynical towards awards, you know, would you encourage people to take them more seriously? So you've got to be very clear about what you're doing this for. Some companies need awards for PR purposes. Now, our last company was a direct-to-consumer healthcare product in the mm. fertility space. And that was driven, you know, sales were driven by exposure in the media. And so in that company, we spent a good deal of time looking at PR opportunities and you know, awards were part of that as well. And that was for the business purpose of making sales. This company, you know, we don't make sales. We don't sell into the NHS. We give them product. They give us data. At the we, moment. At the moment. We're going out to the US uh, where, again, we will be giving devices to patients and we will hopefully be funded to some extent by the, the healthcare system to do that uh, as well. But the purpose of the company is not to go on market to, to patients. So why do we want awards? Occasionally, it's useful for investors to see that you've won an award. That's great. Everyone likes to win an award and track a little piece of glass on the shelf. But it's a competitive environment, and people with a stronger competitive need for these things are likely to outcompete you if you are not, you know, quite logical and methodical as to what you're doing. Yeah. So think carefully about whether this is right for your company. These things do take a lot of time to apply for, and, and to manage when you have them. Because and to manage, yes, some exactly. of them come with, you know this meeting there and that conference right. there and they fly you to this place, yeah. which is great if you want to make those connections, if you do have plans to make the most of them. Mm. But if you're just going along because you just wanted that award, that's not a great <laughs> yeah. use of time. No, that's a good point. And there are dozens and dozens of awards out there, right? It's a case of screening them early to see about the fit and why you want it, then applying with the appropriate amount of time put into the application process. Right? You can massively overdo that. And then, you know, you're effectively wasting your resource. Mm. Um, although you might win it and you'll be like, oh, way, we won it, right? If you keep following that process many, many times over, which you have to do, then you will ultimately end up losing. So, mm. you know, be careful. But absolutely worth doing for the right business reasons. Just be clear about why. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you both for your time. What's next? What's your, what's your sign off on this podcast? Ah, the, the, the big thing that's coming up for us now, we've just won another big grant to fund a clinical study of our devices with GP groups, pharmacists and patients in the home in the NHS. And literally tonight, we're off to go and pitch to our investors for the required matched funding for that. A lot of these grants require you to match fund for it. So hopefully, uh, in a fairly short period of time, we will convince our investors to open their wallets uh, and get yet another grant underway and be helping literally hundreds more NHS patients who have poorly managed heart failure. That's great. And we'll be tracking your progress closely. And uh, we hope to be sharing that good news on the podcast in future weeks. Thank you very much. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. 
The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. Cambridge United Foundation is the charitable arm of Cambridge United Football Club. We utilise the power of sport to improve people's lives in our community. We run a range of sessions working with different groups from older adults to school children and for anyone who might not have equal access to sport and activity. To find out more about what we do, visit cufcfoundation.com.